Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Thank you to all the listeners who have downloaded the first three episodes of True Blue Crime Investigates. There are just two weeks until the start of CrimeCon 2023, and after the event, I will be adjusting my release schedule for the podcast. I will be aiming to do two episodes on True Blue Crime, two episodes on this podcast, and one premium episode a week. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified when a new episode is available. You can also get updates about what the podcast is up to by liking and following the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page, and you can find more information on the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And as I mentioned before, I will be coming out with a premium episode each week, starting the week after CrimeCon. Uh, So in roughly three weeks, you'll see the first premium episode. Uh, That will be a subscriber-only episode, and the only way to get a subscription is to donate to patreon or paypal but for no cost whatsoever if you could please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on thanks so much without any further ado let's dive into this episode of true blue crime investigates while most serial killers or mass murderers commit their crime directly to their selected victims there are some rare exceptions for those who kill from distance and even more rarely some will kill indiscriminately from distance The case of the Tylenol murders is one of the rarest forms of mass killings in America's history, and remains unsolved after 40 years. The killer or killers could not control who ended up on the receiving end of their evil plan, which makes their actions even more callous and disturbing. While there have been many suspects to include famous criminals such as Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, law enforcement has not been able to convict anyone for the actual murders and the victims families investigators and the general public all want this case to be solved one day this is the case of the tylenol murders cold and flu season is rapidly approaching us here in the united states and within the next couple of months people will be stocking up on over-the-counter medications to combat the miserable symptoms that accompany the unavoidable seasonal illnesses In the modern world, when you go to open up your bottle of ibuprofen, acetaminophen, or cold and flu medicine, you'll have to navigate some form of seal in order to access the pills or tablets inside. In 1982, these anti-tampering devices didn't exist yet, and someone incredibly malicious took advantage of this and removed new bottles of extra-strength Tylenol at pharmacies in the greater Chicago area and replaced them with bottles filled with capsules loaded with cyanide, an extremely deadly poison. The indiscriminate nature of the crime meant that anyone could grab a bottle of the medicine and bring it home and adjust it before dying, and the killer or killers had no way to control who purchased or actually ingested the medicine. The lack of direct targeting made finding the killer next to impossible, but before we get into the investigation, let's look at the victims of this terrible act. At 6.30 a.m. on September 29, 1982, Mary Kellerman, a 12-year-old girl living in a suburb of Chicago, woke up feeling ill, and her parents allowed her to stay home from school. To help combat her symptoms, she is given a Tylenol capsule recently purchased by her parents. After taking the capsule, she went to the bathroom. A few minutes later, her parents heard a large thud. They knocked on the door and got no response, and eventually forced their way into the bathroom, where Mary was found unconscious on the bathroom floor. They called 911, and paramedics responded and did all they could to revive the young girl. She was rushed to Alexian Brother Medical Center in Elk Grove Village and was pronounced dead at 9.56 a.m. Because she was only 12 and there's no explanation for her sudden death, an autopsy is scheduled. But there is no rush as the police had no indication of any crime at this point. In fact, most of the original death investigation was done over the phone, and when the parent's story matched the paramedic report, there is no further investigation planned. And this is not all that uncommon. Uh, as we're going to find out, police at this point have no idea that there's going to be this mass poisoning. So yes, it's extremely strange and extremely rare that a 12-year-old girl woke up feeling ill a few hours later is dead, but they have no suspicion that anything out of the ordinary happened. 
every jurisdiction is different, but it's common practice for people under a certain age, usually around 50, to have automatic autopsies done in the, in the event of an unexplained death. And, and when I mean unexplained, I mean it's not a long-term cancer patient or somebody battling some type of terminal illness. It's a sudden and unexplained death of somebody under a certain age. And this is obviously done to rule out any chance of foul play, but it's also done to get answers for the family. There may be some type of a genetic disorder that the other family members need to be aware of. If it's something that is preventable, there's a chance that medicine can save other members of the family. So again, an autopsy is often done, but it's not as if they're going to rush to get this autopsy done because they're looking at it as, as some type of a natural death at this point. And unfortunately, this may be something that the killer or killers planned on happening. Because these deaths are going to be related to cyanide poisoning, it's not something that a lot of medical professionals are going to recognize right off the bat. I know it's said that the paramedic that tried to save this 12-year-old girl's life, I think one of the quotes in the, one of the articles was he threw every drug at her that he could and nothing worked. And that's because the way cyanide works is it actually blocks the ability for oxygen to be absorbed into the system. And it basically causes a cardiac arrest situation because there's not the life-giving oxygen flowing through the body. And this only takes a couple minutes before the person, in a way, goes into this cardiac arrest via the lack of oxygen. And there is no way to prevent this on a scene. There's no drugs that paramedics carry with them that is going to counter what's going on with the cyanide poisoning, especially because it's not something they're going to be aware of. They're going to treat it as if it's a cardiac event. They're going to ventilate the patient, give them more oxygen, but of course it's not, the oxygen is not going to be absorbed because of the cyanide in the body. So no matter what they do, unfortunately, they cannot reverse this through regular means that they're, that they're going to do. So the killer of killers is likely going to know this and if there's not a suspected initial case of poisoning here, there's going to be, as we're going to find out, several poisonings. And really, it's only because of what's going to happen next that there weren't more deaths. What happened next was at noon that same day, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Janice had also woken up that morning not feeling well, and he called in sick to work. He rested all morning, and at noon he got up to drive and get his children from preschool. After picking up the children, he stopped at a local Jewel Foods and purchased some Tylenol to help him feel better. After making lunch for himself and the children, he took two of the Tylenol and said he was going to lay down again. A few minutes later, he got up, staggered a few steps, and then collapsed. Adam was transported to a different hospital, this time Northwest Community Hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 3.15 p.m. The doctors assumed that the failure of resuscitation attempts meant that Adam's heart had given out and explained to his family it was likely a cardiac event. And now Adam's 27 years old and he was said to be pretty healthy and it does happen where people can have cardiac issues that go undiagnosed. I remember uh, assisting with an autopsy during a death investigation school. We actually worked in the county morgue for a few days uh, doing autopsies, and one of the guys came in, and he was in his, honestly, his mid-30s, and had a, some type of a sudden cardiac arrest situation. And while doing the autopsy, we removed his heart, and the pathologist went, Oh my goodness and his heart was about three times the size of a human heart should be if you actually clench up your fist and into kind of a ball or punching fist type type of a formation that's about the size your heart is supposed to be and i said this guy's heart was like the size of a cow's heart and it weighed three times as much as it was supposed to and we, the pathologist dissected the heart and found that one of his valves was faulty so for his entire life, his heart had had to work three times as hard as everybody else's heart to pump blood through the chambers. And as a result, your heart is a muscle, and it's like 
weightlifters or bodybuilders, the more you work, the bigger that muscle gets. And that's why his heart was so big. But basically, his heart had worked three times as hard as everybody else's heart. So his lifespan, unfortunately, was a third of what everybody else's was going to be. So again, these 27-year-olds, they people unfortunately do have sudden medical events where they they pass away but usually it's during that autopsy that they're going to hopefully find the reason sometimes it's a brain aneurysm sometimes it's you know something along those lines where it's just a sudden a blood clot in the wrong spot there can be a variety of reasons usually medical science can locate the reason for it but again it's not an immediate thing it's not the second that somebody is pronounced dead by the doctor they're on an autopsy table and the, the family's getting answers oftentimes these can be a day or two after the the death just depending how busy the the pathologists are and and uh, other other factors but again they're going to assume just based on what they're seeing, the fact the heart's giving out, the fact that it's not responding to medication, that it's a cardiac event. And while the doctor was explaining Adam's death, in another part of Chicago, 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner was at home in nearby Winfield with her four children. She had just given birth to her fourth child one week prior and wasn't feeling quite right, so she took some Tylenol and a few minutes later she collapsed. She was taken to yet another hospital where she was also pronounced dead. And again, this is the greater Chicago area. There is not just one hospital. These are the, the suburbs outside of Chicago. So there are going to be a, a dozen different hospitals in the area in which the, this Tylenol was distributed. So the chance of two patients ending up at the same hospital coming from different areas of, of the suburbs is not great, which is why the, they're all going to to these different hospitals and they're all younger people having unexplained deaths but not something completely out of the ordinary for an area the size of Chicago and the suburbs of Chicago. Around the time the doctors were trying to explain her death to her family, Adam Janice's family had gathered back at his home to grieve the death of the beloved family man. Stanley Janice, Adam's younger brother, had some chronic back pain and asked if he could use some of the Tylenol from Adam's house. His wife, Teresa, gave him two of the capsules, and then she took two herself for a headache she had developed from the stress of the day. And with minutes, both of the healthy adults collapsed on the floor. The fire department responded to the house for the second time that day, and when two more members of the Janice family arrived at the same hospital Adam had just been pronounced dead at, the presiding doctor for his case was just about to leave. But upon hearing more Janice family members were on their way and had also collapsed, he decided to stay and figure out what was going on. And he had some quotes in an article basically saying he heard word through a nurse that more members of the Janice family were coming in, and he assumed it was Adam's parents because they were a little bit older, uh, they weren't in the best of health, and thought that maybe the stress of losing their son had caused them to collapse, and so he, he just kind of chalked it up to that, but he wanted to be sure because he just talked with his family and he's gonna find out that it's not the parents, it's Adam's brother who's also healthy and the brother's wife. And they're gonna show very similar symptoms to what Adam presented with, which is very strange to have three like deaths. And now some people could say, well, Adam and Stanley are brothers, so maybe they have the same genetic defect, but that wouldn't explain why Stanley's wife, Teresa, would also collapse. So. Now they're going to start to think that this is environmental. It's caused by an outside source at the home. And the fire department, thinking the same thing, contacted the public health department and requested a public health nurse to figure out what had happened. She responded to the hospital where now three members of the Janice family had been pronounced dead that day. So again, this public health department, they're in charge of things like pandemics and any type of exposure situation anything that's a danger to public health as a whole and so the fire department's going to look at this and say we don't quite know what's going on but we have three healthy adults of the same family in this from the same location collapsing suddenly and we think we have a public health emergency going on here this this isn't making sense from a a random medical standpoint 
And the nurse would locate Adam's wife and started asking her questions. And the doctor then joins the conversation and has decided that they needed to get an investigator involved and go to the Janus residence to find the source of this fatal medical issue. While they were getting ready to go to the Janus residence, 31-year-old Mary McFarland of nearby Elmhurst was working at a landline phone store when she complained of a bad headache and told co-workers she was going to head to the break room and take some Tylenol. Within minutes of taking the capsule, she collapsed and was pronounced dead around 7 p.m. And so they said it was like a Pacific Bell store, so I looked it up. The best I could tell from pictures was this was a literally a landline phone store. This is where you went to purchase a landline phone for your home back in the day. So basically think of a, a current cell phone store where you go and get a, a plan and a phone, and this is what I guess where she worked was a a landline phone version of that. And at 8 p.m., the public health nurse and an investigator arrived at the Janus home. They now suspected some form of poisoning, and they knew that the symptoms were consistent with cyanide. The home appeared normal with regular amounts of over-the-counter medication. They found out that Adam had done some metalworking in the basement, and they knew that cyanide can be used in metal polishing, so they wondered if somehow food or something had been contaminated and then ingested. But then the public health nurse noticed the bottle of Tylenol. It was a new bottle with six capsules missing, the exact amount required for three adult doses. So they secured the Tylenol bottle and brought it to the hospital for testing. So this is just really lucky. Uh, I think it had mentioned too that the word Tylenol was in a couple of different reports. And again, this would be just something as you're talking, you'd say, hey, Adam had a bad headache. He wasn't feeling well. He took some Tylenol. He went to go lay down. And same thing with with Stanley and Teresa. It was, yeah, they weren't feeling well, so they took some Tylenol, and then they collapsed. So they're going to hone in on this this common behavior of this Tylenol. The public health nurse is going to look and say, hey, we've got six capsules missing, and those six capsules were said to be taken by all three people who are now deceased. And while they were driving the suspicious bottle to the hospital, 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince was arriving in Chicago at the end of her shift. She got off work and stopped at a Walgreens to buy some Tylenol on her way home. She lived alone, and unfortunately her body would not be found for several days. At 10 p.m., the public health nurse, investigator, and doctor were looking at the bottle of Tylenol from the Janus house. The nurse insisted that it was the source of the cyanide, but other people weren't convinced. And you have to understand, She's making a pretty bold accusation at this point. People want to trust medication, especially in, in the medical profession. Uh, that's part of the med- medical profession is telling people to take different types of medication to alleviate the symptoms of whatever ailment they have. So for this nurse and this investigator to be telling people, we think somehow this Tylenol is laced with cyanide, it's not something people want to believe at first. But then they were made aware of 12-year-old Mary's death and learned that she too had ingested a Tylenol capsule before collapsing. And just by chance, the medics had inventoried the bottle and it was being stored at the police department. So in the case of Mary's death, it was, again, You could look at it definitely from the point of her family as being lucky because there is a very good chance that had the paramedics not inventoried that Tylenol bottle as a part of their the medical investigation into her death there's a good chance her parents may have ingested the Tylenol later that day and ended up the same situation as the Janus family with multiple family deaths from one location. Now again that might have furthered the investigation but they were already going to know it's the Tylenol pretty soon so it would have just been more unfortunate deaths if that Tylenol bottle had been left there but luckily it wasn't it was part of this inventory so they had the police department rush this bottle to the hospital and when the bottles were emptied out the investigator noticed they smelled like almonds this was a lucky break because only half of the population in the world can smell the almond aroma from cyanide The other half cannot smell anything from cyanide. And this is just an interesting tidbit. It's obviously something to do with our DNA, our scent receptors. It's it's literally just that half of the population, if you were to smell cyanide, would you'd get an an odor of almonds coming from it, and the other half are gonna smell nothing. And it actually saved at least one person's life 
because it was the wife of a judge had bought some Tylenol. I think it was from the same store that Paula Prince bought her Tylenol from. And she got home and she was going to take one of the capsules, but she noticed this weird odor that she couldn't quite put her finger on, but likely with this almond odor coming from the capsules. And she knew that Tylenol wasn't supposed to have that smell to it, so she got concerned something could have been tampered with and didn't take the the Tylenol. Had she been half of the population that couldn't smell that, she likely would have been the eighth victim of this poisoning. And by midnight that night, the investigators and public nurse had tested the capsules and the blood work from the victims and had confirmed the presence of cyanide in the Tylenol and the victims and everyone involved knew they were dealing with a mass murder via poisoning. By 9.30 a.m. on Thursday, September 30, 1982, six victims of the poisoning had died and one was yet to be discovered. 30 minutes later, an attorney with Johnson & Johnson, the owners of the Tylenol brand, arrived at the hospital where the three members of the Janus family died. They were shown the lab reports and tainted capsules and advised that this was a public health emergency and the information needed to go public immediately. There was some pushback from the company, but they eventually realized this was necessary and cooperated. And I could only imagine, you know, this lawyer and the corporate people at Tylenol looking at all their different options here. And we just had the case of D.B. Cooper with Northwest Orient Airlines. And it's one of those things, you know your company is just about to bleed a bunch of money out. And in this case, it's going to be a lot more money than the Northwest Orient had to, had to bleed out 10 years earlier for the D.B. Cooper deal. But so at first you're going to say, is there any other way we can go around this? Is there, are we looking at this a different way? Could, could these people specifically have been targeted? Could it be only the bottle for the Janus family? And the lawyers are going to be shown there's a second bottle and that both bottles had cyanide and both bottles were purchased recently. So eventually Johnson Johnson realized if we don't do this recall, things are going to get a lot worse for us. So by 3 p.m. that day, Johnson Johnson announced a massive recall of Tylenol capsules that were believed to have been tainted. Officials did not know at this time if the tampering occurred at the factory or in the stores because initially all the two tainted bottles they had had the same lot number, and officials feared there'd be dozens if not hundreds of bottles in circulation. So every bottle of medication printed on there somewhere is the lot number and you that can be traced back to a specific run of that medication at a specific factory so when they get the bottles from mary kellerman's and the janice's deaths they look at it it's the same lot number so they theorize there's a chance you've got this rogue employee at this factory who loaded up these tunnel and that's worst case scenario actually for johnson and johnson and for the public in general at that point because these bottles this lot number would have been shipped out all across the country or at least all across the midwest and so if that's the case there could be dozens of these tainted bottles in dozens of different cities and you could have people dying all over the country and unless somebody put it together like what happened with the Janus family and then the Kellermans, it would be a while before potentially you could stop this mass poisoning. And this caused the public fear response to be extremely high. Many people who had taken Tylenol in the 24 hours before the murders were calling 911 or showing up to hospitals worried they might die from cyanide poisoning. But they were told if they hadn't died within minutes of taking the capsules, they weren't at risk. So if you, if you can imagine you're living in the Chicago area at this time, and you stopped at a pharmacy and you happened to get an untainted bottle of Tylenol, but you had ingested it prior to this warning, I mean, you probably had to be worried, am I going to drop dead any minute? Well, the only positive thing about this entire situation is, if you can look at it from a positive light, is that cyanide kills quickly so it's not something where it was going to take days and multiple people could have ingested it during that time period and now they're at risk it's one of those things where once you've ingested it you have a couple minutes to live and that's it so if you took Tylenol and you were still alive to call or show up at a hospital your Tylenol wasn't tainted is what they were trying to tell people and by Friday, October 1st, more and more officials and politicians were learning of the extent of the fatal poisonings. 
At 5 p.m. that day, Paula Prince's body was discovered, and it was attributed to the tainted Tylenol sold in Chicago. The mayor of Chicago did a midnight live press briefing to advise that a total recall of Tylenol products was going to take place, and everyone needed to bring their bottles into stores for a refund so the bottles could be tested. By October 5th, Johnson & Johnson decided to do a full nationwide recall of their product at the cost of over $100 million, or $300 million in today's value, out of an abundance of safety and to try to locate the source of the tampering. And again, this is because early on they only had those two bottles with the lot numbers, so what they're hoping is that some people had purchased bottles that hadn't taken any of the Tylenol, and if there was a capsule or two in there that were tainted or all the capsules were tainted and it showed a different lot number they'd be able to rule out factory involvement and this is actually what is going to happen they are going to get a couple different lot numbers and realize that it, it's not a factory issue it's a local issue so at least from a positive standpoint that limits it to the Chicago area and it's not a nationwide public health emergency and then the following day, an extortion letter arrived at the headquarters of Johnson & Johnson requesting $1 million to stop the tampering and prevent future killings. The letter would help identify one of the main suspects in this case, a man named James Lewis. So again, Johnson & Johnson is going to get this letter on October 6th, I believe it is, that details out that it's simple to do this tampering and he's going to keep doing it unless Johnson & Johnson pays him $1 million. And of course, he used a pseudonym, and he was actually operating under a completely different name in the Chicago area at the time as well. But we'll get more into him when we look at the suspects. During the month of October, there was the only break in the case is the discovery of one more tainted bottle that had been purchased at the same Walgreens Paula Price purchased her bottle from. And as I mentioned before, just because the, the woman could smell the almonds coming out of the cyanide, there were no victims associated with that bottle. But unfortunately, that is where the case sits today, 40 years later, and still no arrests. But let's look at the investigation, the evidence, and some theories and suspects. The investigation was pretty straightforward. Eight bottles in total were found to have been tampered with and had cyanide-laden capsules placed into them. As I mentioned, originally it thought that the bottles had the same lot number, indicating the tampering may have occurred as part of the same batch of the factory. This would have supported some form of employee subterfuge or revenge against the company. So with all these cases, we always look to motive. In this case, we're going to talk about it at the end, but I think the only way to solve this is by looking at the motive. If all the bottles had come from the same factory, your motive is likely an employee at that factory that's upset about the company. There's, there's some recent discipline, there's a failure to promote this person, there's wage issues, whatever it might be, there's somebody in the company that comes in one day and says, you know what, I know how to get back at this company. They don't want to pay me an extra dollar an hour. I'm going to cost them $100 million. And granted, the employee maybe don't, doesn't know that it's going to be that expensive, but they realize that something like this is horrible PR and going to be very costly for the company. So if that had been the case, investigators would have gone down that road of investigation, looking at employees that had access to this lot number, looking at their backgrounds, their employment history, all that kind of stuff. However, being that it was later determined the bottles came from two separate factories, one in Pennsylvania and one in Texas, this lone upset employee theory was abandoned, and it was also highly unlikely that two employees at two separate factories committed this crime at the same time. And it's also unlikely because all of the bottles ended up in the Chicago area. So in order to believe that this happened at the factory, not only did two separate employees have to have the same idea at the same time, all of the tainted bottles that they happened to manipulate at the factory would have had to end up in the same area of Chicago at the same time in roughly the same stores. So the likelihood of that is so minimal that they decided to go with this theory that the only explanation for the localization of the poisoning meant that it was a single suspect who was local to the Chicago area or at least he or she was in the area at the time of the poisonings and either tampered with the bottles in the stores by removing normal capsules and replacing them with cyanide-filled ones, or they purchased the bottles, brought them back home, refilled the bottles with the deadly capsules, and then went back to the stores and placed the tampered bottles back on the shelves directly. It's highly unlikely that they did any type of a return 
of the purchased bottles because that's going to leave a little bit of a trail in terms of eyewitnesses and as we're going to talk about with security cameras. So if you're going to commit this murder, I don't know that you're going to try to get your $1.50 back or whatever it was for a bottle of Tylenol back then. You're just going to bring this bottle of Tylenol home, empty it out, replace it with the cyanide-laden capsules that you've filled, and then walk back in and, and nobody's going to notice you pulling a bottle out of your pocket and putting it back onto the shelf and walking away. And you've now just planted a bottle filled with cyanide-laden capsules onto the store shelf. And so this is how investigators believe the person pulled off the crime. And the investigators knew which stores the bottles were purchased from, but security cameras and video storage was expensive, so most stores that had security cameras only recorded the cash register areas. Police were not able to obtain any video of a suspect or suspects in the medicine aisles where the bottles were kept. And again, this is 1982, so things are being stored on VHS cassette tapes more than likely, which was a rather new technology at the time and expensive and you had to store a lot of camera information on VHS tapes which were also expensive to store stuff on so it just it wasn't like today where you can get a, a pretty cheap home security camera and, and everything's stored either on a cloud or on a hard drive or both and most modern retail locations and pharmacies are going to have multiple cameras throughout their store because it's cheap to Put the cameras in it's cheap cheaper to store all that information it's just a different time so unfortunately they focus their cameras to prevent things like robberies or uh, something along those lines uh, a lot of times it's actually to prevent employee theft as well but unfortunately what this means is they don't have security camera footage of anybody coming into the Tylenol area and replacing uh, Tylenol bottles laced with the cyanide. In a desperate attempt to locate the suspect, with the family's permission, the FBI allowed a Chicago newspaper columnist to release the home address of 12-year-old Mary Kellerman. The Behavioral Analysis Unit the FBI had theorized that the killer may want to visit the site where his or her first and youngest victim died, so both her home and her gravesite were put under 24-hour hidden surveillance for months, but it resulted in no viable leads. And again, we're going to talk about that down the road and what that means. And the most investigated suspect in the poisoning was the extortionist and con man mentioned before, James Lewis. After he attempted to extort $1 million from Johnson & Johnson, he was looked at very closely for being the actual suspect behind the poisonings. A search of his residence revealed a book on poisoning with his fingerprints on pages related to making cyanide capsules. When he was originally investigated, he told investigators he had been working on the extortion letter for three days, but he was only taking advantage of the publicity behind the case and he wasn't the suspect. So when he's honed in, they, they identify him as the extortionist trying to get this money out of this deal. And when he's being looked at, obviously he's a very viable candidate for both the extortion and the actual poisoning. And it's going to be an issue with him as a suspect throughout this entire investigation because he could just be the terrible con man that he was and was taking advantage of an a pre-existing situation that somebody else created or he may be the mastermind behind the tampering and the entire reason for it was to extort Johnson & Johnson and so this is going to be a battle the investigators fight for 40 years but years later the FBI realized his letter to Johnson & Johnson was postmarked October 1st and I think this is because the postmark was covered up or somehow manipulated so that you couldn't actually see when this item was postmarked and when they were able to finally see this postmark, and it was I said after 2000, I think it was, they realized his initial timeline was that he had been working on this letter for three days. So that meant he started writing it on September 27th or 28th, the day before or the day of the first poisonings. And this was, again, before any of these deaths went public. So by his own timeline, he's trying to extort Johnson & Johnson for some poisonings that haven't even hit the news yet so he would the only way he would know that people are going to be dying from the cyanide is if he was the one that put the cyanide laden 
capsules into those bottles and put those bottles out. And John Lewis was no stranger to homicide. Just four years before the Tylenol murders, he had done taxes for a man who was found dismembered in his attic. Lewis was charged with the murders, but he was never tried because all of the most damning evidence was deemed inadmissible in court due to police error. And he was also known to be a man obsessed with money and had no morals about how he went about obtaining that money. He was suspected of credit card fraud and fled Missouri for Chicago in late 1981. While in Chicago, John's wife ran into wage issues with her employer, and John became upset and went after the employer, which was a travel agency, and after they failed to obtain the unpaid wages, the couple left Chicago on September 4th, 1982. The letter John Lewis is known to have sent to Johnson & Johnson was marked October 1st, so it is possible he wrote it after learning of the deaths and wanted to play on the company's and public's fear of more poisonings. So investigators are going off of him saying it took him three days to write this letter, and he's going to later change his story to that he doesn't remember how long it took him to write the letter. So again, it's not direct evidence. Had this been postmarked before the poisonings, then I think there would be direct evidence that he had knowledge beforehand, but it's going to be postmarked the same day that this knowledge is widespread, and nobody would put it past this on Lewis to take advantage of this crisis as soon as it happened, and so it's more likely that he wrote out the extortion letter the day that this information went public, and that's when it's postmarked. And then on October 2nd, Lewis wrote a letter to President Ronald Reagan threatening to harm him and his security detail using remote-controlled airplanes to assassinate him unless he did away with certain taxes. And he also threatened to plant more cyanide in stores if his demands weren't met. So this guy, again, he's, he's, a, he's a real piece of work, but he when he goes, he goes big. And so he decides as long as he's extorting Tylenol, he probably doesn't want to pay a million dollars on his extortion money and wants President Ronald Reagan to get rid of all taxes. Because even though he's a tax guy, at least that's what he was back in Missouri, he believes taxes to be wrong. And while the FBI looked at Lewis, a bar owner in Chicago called police to turn in one of his regulars who he overheard talking about cyanide. Roger Arnold was arrested and his apartment was searched and several unregistered firearms and manuals about making poison, including cyanide, were located. Police were unable to link Roger Arnold to the poisonings and in retaliation for being turned into the police, he ambushed a man he believed to be the bartender who ratted him out. This foolish act of revenge is even more sad when it was revealed that the man killed was an innocent family man who had nothing to do with the case at all. Roger Arnold would eventually serve 15 years of a 30-year sentence for murder, but was not considered a suspect for the Tylenol murders. Lewis was convicted of mail fraud for his attempt to extort money out of the poisonings. While serving his 10-year sentence, authorities continued to investigate him for the murders, and while he gave them a lot of evidence to include drawings of how he believed the killer got the cyanide into the capsules, authorities never obtained enough information to bring charges against him for the murders. In 2010, a cold case task force assigned to the case took yet another look at Lewis and were able to obtain a warrant for his DNA to compare it to DNA found on some of the tainted bottles and capsules. That same year, Roger Arnold's body, he had died two years earlier, was exhumed and his DNA was collected to be compared to the possible suspect DNA, but the DNA sample were not a match. And it's always difficult with these cases, I think back to, we just talked about the D.B. Cooper case, and there's some other cases. When we're talking about DNA from, from these types of cases, we're talking a lot about touch DNA, whether it be the tie clip from or and tie from D.B. Cooper or these prescription bottles and capsules. Now, there are photos of laboratory scientists going through these capsules and these bottles looking for the cyanide-laced capsules, and of course they're using protective equipment to protect themselves from the cyanide, which included at the time latex gloves. So there is a chance that this DNA from the bottles and the capsules could actually be suspect DNA. It's just whenever there's something from 30, 40 plus years ago, pre-DNA, I always worry that the people that handled the evidence at some point along the way 
could have deposited this DNA. Now, they did say they compared the DNA to a lot of known profiles of people who would have handled this stuff, but again, to me, it's never a slam dunk that the DNA they have from these cases. Now, in the case of like the Golden State Killer, that was DNA from a sexual assault. So I am, if it's a, if it's a bodily fluid DNA case from 30, 40, 50 years ago, I'm 100% okay with the idea that that suspect DNA. It just, with these cases, even though their DNA has been ruled out against whatever DNA that they have, I never fully believe that that exonerates somebody just because from how I understood it in the, in the readings, I'm not 100% sure that the DNA that they have from these bottles is 100% going to be the suspect DNA. Now, there may be something I don't know. There might be that this they know for sure that this bottle was never touched. Maybe it was the, the bottle that the woman smelled the almond smell out of, so she never touched the capsules. And if they got DNA off of one of those capsules, and they know everybody else who handled that bottle was wearing gloves, then I could believe a little bit more that this is solid suspect DNA and anybody whose DNA doesn't match can be exonerated. But until that information is made available, how they know for sure that this suspect DNA is actually 100% suspect DNA, I'm not going to rule anybody out just because their DNA doesn't match. And in 2011, the case once again hit headlines when Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, went public with the story that the FBI was attempting to get his DNA. Ted's parents lived in the area of the poisoning during the time that the poisonings occurred, and they, they matched his method of indiscriminate killing, but again, no match was made. And I think this was a stretch. I think this was one of those things where people put together that the Unabomber was in the area at the time of the killings, and he had this method of killing people from distance. But a couple things don't match up. The Unabomber was upset about mechanical technology, uh, airplanes, mechanical technological advances, and that doesn't really match up with medicine and things like acetaminophen. It just didn't match his method of killing. He had a plan behind these bombs, and yes, the bombs were indiscriminate because anybody could have opened them, and in many cases it was a secretary or a security guard that ended up getting hurt instead of the intended victim, but there was at least somebody that was that was being targeted in those cases. Whereas in this case, again, you can't control who buys these. And it didn't really further the Unabomber's agenda with his, his attack on mechanical technology. So uh, I understand why they wanted to test his DNA. It's, it's a connection that if they didn't, a lot of people would have said, just because of the fact it doesn't match his methodology doesn't mean he didn't do it. You might as well test it. So it was tested and no match was made there. And in a last ditch effort, Lewis was again interviewed by the authorities in 2022 in hopes of obtaining a confession because he was in poor health. And Lewis died in July of 2023 without revealing any involvement in the crimes. So now with the main two suspects dead, which Roger Arnold and Lewis, and no advanced evidence to show their guilt, and a high-profile suspect also eliminated by DNA, who's also now deceased, where do investigators go? And so it's possible they could pursue forensic genealogy at some point to see if they can find a viable suspect from that DNA that has been hidden for 40 years. That, or they have to wait for a deathbed confession, or someone finally deciding to tell a 40-year-old secret, is really the only hope that this case is solved. And for me, the main piece of evidence that we currently have in this case is the method of the killing. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is the, one of the rarest of rare ways to kill someone because you have no control over who your final victim is as anyone can buy the capsules and you know, anyone can ingest them. And really, there's only two killers that would benefit from this type of killing. One is a person with severe psychological issues that enjoy the panic and misery that they've caused. So they would have a need for inflicting indirect pain on others so they would have to have had a severe hatred or need for revenge on society as a whole. They would most likely be a severe social outcast and likely would have committed a similar act, but maybe not nearly as successfully sometime after 1982. So again, this is your extreme loner, your hermit, your person who 
is sick and twisted and has decided that they are going to cause death, but they're so socially inept that they likely can't even function going out on dates or meeting people or even picking up prostitutes. So this is a serial killer slash mass killer that hides behind this completely indirect, insocial way of killing. And the reason I don't know that this is 100% accurate as being the actual suspect was what the FBI did. I think this is a behavioral profile that the FBI probably came up with back in 1982, and that's why they released Mary Kellerman's home address and her gravesite location. Because if this is a if this is the suspect, this person would likely have not been able to avoid the desire to go and see the pain that they've inflicted. Again, they don't have to meet with the family. They don't have to talk with the family. Just driving to that house and sitting outside it and watching the mother and father come out of that house would be a psychological thrill to this person. Just going to the grave site where you see your victim's headstone would be a thrill to this person. So I think that's where the FBI was going with that surveillance they had on, on the house and the grave site for several months. But the fact that nobody ever showed up leads me to believe that this wasn't the type of killing because I, I don't know that that's something that this person would have been able to avoid doing. And the only other suspect, and this is what I believe, is going to be somebody with an agenda. They would have wanted to do serious financial and reputational harm to Tylenol as they singled out that brand of medicine. If this was about killing the maximum amount of people, a suspect would have been better off spreading out the brands and types of medicine to make it harder to get all the tainted capsules off the shelves. So again, that goes back to if you had this severely psychologically messed up person, if they want to inflict the most pain and the most damage, they could have done this on several different brands of medicine. They could have done this in several different locations. They didn't just have to stay in the Chicago area. They could have driven out from Chicago within eight hours. You can be in several other larger metropolitan areas, and you really don't even need to be in a large metropolitan area. You can drive to a small town, but they could drive up to the Milwaukee area, the Minneapolis area, down to the Quad Cities in Iowa, and all it was, would have taken is putting a single bottle in each of those locations and it would have taken them longer, authorities much longer to locate all the victims and, and tie these all together. So to me, it seemed like they wanted people to know that it was Tylenol. They wanted Tylenol to be singled out as the target. And so this would have been someone who held a very personal grudge against the company or, as in the case of John Lewis, wanted a specific target of his extortion plan. Because once you put the cyanide into any other brand of medicine, Tylenol is no longer as easily to extort. Because they're going to point the finger at another major pharmaceutical company and say, see, they've got problems too. Now they have to recall everything and it just doesn't make it as strong of an extortion. It doesn't doesn't help to take more hostages at this point. It helps to have one strong hostage. And I personally think Don Lewis is still a very strong suspect in this case, but the problem with it is investigators have never been able to put him back in Chicago because he left, they know he left with his wife and got an apartment in the New York area the beginning of September of 1982. That's either some really good pre-planning on his part where he wants to get out of town, but he's got to come back to actually physically put these bottles on the shelves. And nobody can put him in Chicago during the time of the poisonings. So unless he made some type of a secret drive, put them there, and then went back to New York, again, it, maybe he's just such a good con man that he knows if he's living in the area that these poisonings occur, he's going to be a higher level suspect. But there's no direct evidence of him committing the crimes, just trying to profit from them after the fact. So again, there's, there's nothing. The DNA doesn't match. The postmark, while questionable, doesn't actually indicate that he had prior knowledge of the poisonings before he wrote the extortion letter and before it was made public. So while from the, on the surface he's a really good suspect, there's just still not enough direct evidence, and that's what the FBI ran into, not enough direct evidence to tie him to the actual poisonings. 
The crimes changed America in a few ways. Laws were passed that required certain food and drugs to be packaged in such a way that after the product left the factory, it would be obvious to someone that the item had been tampered with. This is why everything from toothpaste to Tylenol has foil seals on it before you purchase it. And the lore of tainted Halloween candy was a direct result of the Tylenol poisoning scare. As the murders and investigations occurred in the month leading up to Halloween, many parents refused to let their kids trick-or-treat in 1982, and some cities outlawed the practice. Candy sales nationwide dropped 20% that year. And I remember growing up, this was, in the, I was trick-or-treating in the late 80s, and this was still a thing where you didn't open any candy that was already, you know, the package was disturbed in any way or anything like that because somebody could put cyanide in the candy or, or poison the candy some way or whatever it might be. And, and all of those urban legends about tainted candy came from these Tylenol murders directly before Halloween in 1982. And there have been a string of copycat crimes over the years, and one of them is really interesting. I'll cover that case in True Blue Crime, but the suspects in those cases have been cleared of any involvement in the original crime. And a similar crime in New York, even after the introduction of anti-tamper devices, forced Tylenol to change the capsules. So Tylenol used to just use a simple two-part gel cap, just two different capsules that, when pushed together, completed the capsule. So you could go into the Tylenol bottle, remove the capsules, pull them apart, empty out the contents, refill them, and then put them back together, and they look like your regular Tylenol capsule. So after this next tampering issue in New York, they had to make the capsules in such a way that you, the consumer could no longer pull them apart. If you tampered with them and pulled the capsules apart, you would then see this when you went to take a capsule there'd be evidence that the capsule itself had been tampered with sadly whether this crime was for extortion revenge or just sick thrills it took the lives of seven people that deserve justice hopefully one day soon that justice will be served and the monster responsible for these horrible crimes will be held accountable but that is the case of the tylenol murders thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com you can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.